Alright, okay. I am recording. Yeah, we're doing this? It is live. Okay. Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast. I am Albert Lamb. I'm Drew Tan. We are your hosts of and uh, Between the Gutters Podcast. What, no, what, just keep we're, no, go with it. We'll do, we'll, go, we'll do it live. We'll do it live. Shankadanka. 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 <laughs> All right, we gotta stay committed to this. Like, if, otherwise, we're just gonna keep uh, restarting. I, I froze up there, and and uh, I, I, I meant to say, between the gutters. Our catchphrase. I forgot our Insert, catchphrase. Uh, where we try to <laughs> between the panels. <laughs> We, we, comics between the Comic panels. books good. <laughs> comics good. Me read like girls. <laughs> You're listening to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels <laughs> and Shanka Donka. So today, we are joined once again by our friend Alexander Shanus. Yes, hello. hello. I am here and definitely enjoying this chunk of donkiness. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to continue our discussion of the top 25 Marvels of all time. Back to the business. Back to the business. So just as a means of a quick recap, uh, how we came to our uh, final rankings were based on three, four criteria. First of all, was craft. So basically, is the comic technically sound? And did they demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? The second criteria is originality. So is this comic creative and imaginative? Does it have something new or meaningful to say? Third is impact. So what sort of lasting influence did the comic have within the Marvel Universe, on the industry, or maybe even on pop culture in general? And do fans remember it with affection? And finally, the last criteria is, does this comic withstand the test of time? So is the comic something that holds up today? Is it something that you would want to read over and over in the future outside of its original context? <coughs> and uh, <coughs> counting down, uh, f- we'll just give a brief recap of the comics that have already been in our show. Where we are so far. R- up to where we are so far. Uh, starting with number 25, that was Avengers and New Avengers by Jonathan Hickman, Jerome Pena, and a slew of other artists. Number 24 was Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber and Gene Colan. Number 23 was Punisher Max by Garth Ennis, Goran Parlov, and a bunch of other artists. Number 22 was Omega the Unknown by Jonathan Lethem and <laughs> Pharrell Dalrymple. At number 21, we had Ultimates 1 and 2 by Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. At number 20, we had Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley, Stuart Immonen. At number 19, we had New X-Men by Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely, and various other artists. At number 18, we had Hawkeye by Matt Fraction, David Aja, Annie Wu, and a few other artists. Number 17, we had Spider-Man, Craven's Last Hunt by J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck. At number 17, we had Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. At number 15, we had Alias by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. And today, that brings us to number 14. We're going to talk about numbers 14 and 13 on our show today. And I think today's kind of an interesting one because we're going to be talking about a couple of comics that most people don't necessarily associate immediately with Marvel Comics. Yeah. Um, You know, 
Mar- traditional Marvel fanfare tends to be your average Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, and in putting this list together, um, when we were discussing the 25 greatest Marvels of all time, we really reached to think outside the box mm-hmm. because we really wanted to show some variety in within um, comics and show that Marvel really did some innovative stuff even even beyond you know being the guys that made you know spider-man popular or the fantastic four or what have you right yeah so so they've had a couple of imprints over the years i mean i'd I'd probably say dc is more well known for having more variety because they've had a bunch of different imprints with a different bunch of different outlooks and focuses on what they want to publish outside of basic superhero comics marvel not so much it's a lot more they published a lot more superhero comics, uh, proportionately speaking. Yeah. But over the years, they have had different imprints. Um, they all experiment I mean, every once in a while. Yeah, like back in the 80s, they had Epic, which was one of the first uh, creator-owned imprints, at least from a major publisher. Yeah. But uh, the first item that we're going to talk about today, coming in at number 14, was published under Marvel's Icon Comics imprint from the early, mid-2000s. And... I guess it's it's not defunct now, but I guess you don't really see too many uh, icon comics. Not really, yeah, it's a it's not really commonplace anymore. I think the last one I can think of is probably some Mark Miller comics. Well, didn't uh, I mean wasn't Bendis still putting some stuff out like Powers, Powers. or Yeah, I think I think but Powers, but Powers hasn't come out in a long time. Okay, it's so been a couple years yeah. since the last time Powers came out. Yeah, so. I I don't know. On some <laughs> level, it feels almost like as if uh, Icon's kind of a they only bust it out when it's necessary. Yeah, it's a it's a convenient, yeah. you know. <laughs> but anyway, coming in at number 14 is Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. So Criminal is a series of crime noir stories set they're all set in the same fictional world uh series as published under Marvel uh under their Icon Comics imprint. Lasted, uh, I think it did around 20-something issues. And it's a series of crime stories set in the same universe. And they all serve as an homage to the crime genre and tell <coughs> just good, realistic crime stories. Yeah. And uh, this series won at least two Eisner Awards that, that I can think of uh, in addition to any of those times when Brubaker just won an Eisner for Best Writer. Mm. But... Yeah, it's definitely a, a well-regarded series. Icon Comics, uh, that imprint began in, I believe, 2004. And Criminal, the first issue of Criminal, came out in 2006. Do you want to tell us what it's uh, like about, essentially? I mean, I'm looking for a, a shorthand way of summing that up. but um. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's a, each, each mini-series or each story arc of Criminal focuses on a different cast of characters but it's kind of like Sin City where each story in Sin City had its own main character and protagonist but you always see different characters kind of interacting and intersecting and even if you don't know who everybody is it doesn't really detract from the story or everything still makes sense Hmm. but each story deals with a specific type of of uh, I guess literary trope in the within the crime genre like you'll yeah. have a story about a heist you'll have a story about a man who can't outrun his past yeah and, yeah. and things of that nature 
Um, and I think for anyone who's into crime stories, like especially in uh, the old pulp masters, like yeah. like Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler or Ross McDonald, like those are the kind of guys that you can definitely see Brew Baker and Phillips are influenced yeah. by. It's definitely kind of a modern iteration of like a genre of comics that wasn't around for a long time up to this point, which was the crime comic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like, I I don't know too much about, you know, um, crime comics in terms of their heyday, but, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a period of time where comics definitely had more variety, where it wasn't all just superheroes. Yeah, and then we had uh, Frederick Wertham and Seduction of the Innocent, right? Yeah, and, you know, (laughs) thanks guy thanks yeah. <laughs> this guy who's probably been dead for decades <laughs> unless you're still alive then then thanks <laughs> um so tell us what do you so we're gonna break it down by our criteria and i'm 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 curious what your thoughts are on the art of uh criminal um starting with coward and uh, the, the, the two that we picked are, are the first story was entitled Coward and the second, uh, The Last of the Innocent. Um, yeah, those are, those are just two of the stories uh, that comprise Criminal. So like I said, each, the whole series uh, is basically a mini, series of mini-series or story arcs uh, that tell their own self-contained stories. Yeah. And uh, the two that... Uh, I'd like to focus on our, the first story, the stories that Albert just mentioned, because yeah. those are the ones that ended up winning the, the Eisner Awards. But really, the whole series is, is excellent, awesome stuff. You should yeah. check all of it out. You can't go wrong. Do you have any thoughts on Sean Phillips and uh, his his style? Uh, thoughts? Yeah. The guy's great. Like, <laughs> I, there's, I mean, at this point, maybe the, the listeners have some knowledge of the comic book world and they probably might know this point that Ed Rubrick and Sean Phillips have been working together for a long time now mm-hmm. uh, even when they were working together on um, the DC Wildstorm stuff yeah um, Sleeper Sleeper I think no it was Lark who worked on the art in Gotham Central yeah but it just seems like Sean Phillips just knows how to draw crime noir as much as Ed Rubrick knows how to write it yeah and the pair of them just give you stories that get lost in you get lost in this world that you start thinking this could be real mm-hmm. and how would you describe the art style i would describe it as realistic it's it's one of those art styles where he's not trying too hard to throw in every little like muscle and detail of like it's this feels like a more natural sense of art and you get the sense of expression you get yeah just just his way of drawing faces, and it's like the art tells the story, yeah, as much as Brubaker's script does, yeah. And that's what I'm looking for: is can I go from one panel to the next, and with only a brief word, understand what it is that character is emoting, and how it connects to what will happen in the next scene? Phillips's yeah. ability to convey acting is one of the best. Yeah, like he's definitely one of my all-time favorite artists. Yeah, I like the fact that. <clears throat> He's, he's got a really great ability to, it's, his art is subtle, I guess, in the sense that 
everybody looks different. Everyone has a very unique facial feature, and you can tell them apart. I've read like so many stories that aren't superhero related, or or yeah, that aren't superhero related, where you know it's just a cast of characters, and there's a bunch of them, and you know uh, they're they're just lining up a lot of different people. But after a while, like people start to run together. And you can't tell them apart, which is part of the problem with, um, you know, non-superhero comics. Or not problem, but um, the issues that you have as a reader. challenge with the art, right? Yeah, exactly. And, like, he has, Sean Phillips has a great ability to make it clear. He can draw different faces. Exactly. (laughs) Well, what also is nice, I'm just looking at these random two pages here, and, like, there are very few words between these two pages. Yeah. And, like, literally, if you block out the words, you could look at the characters he drew, and he could tell yeah. what it is they're feeling. Yeah, it's yeah. very expressive. It's like, you don't need to have those orbitals. Yeah. Like, the uh, Marvel did that period of time after the fall of the two towers. Mm-hmm. They had those enough said stories. Yeah. Like, Sean Phillips would have been, like, easy Perfect peasy. For it. Yeah. yeah. He can tell the story without text. Yeah. And I think another thing that really stands out to me uh, with Criminal in particular is his disciplined layouts. Because if you look at their other comics... Like, like we said, they, they've worked on a bunch of comics together um, over the past, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Brubaker and Phillips, they're, they're a team. They're still making comics today, and bless them for that. But uh, they, they started out doing, uh, just as a brief recap, so you get a little history of, of their collaborations. They did some Batman comics together uh, back in the early 2000s. They did this one called Batman Gotham Noir. That was kind of an Elseworlds noir story. Yeah. Uh, they did an issue of, of Batman, an issue of Catwoman here and there. Brubaker and Michael Lark ended up doing this Vertigo crime story called Scene of the Crime. Mm. But Sean Phillips inked that one. And then Phillips and Brubaker also did Sleeper, which is one of the greatest comics of all time. If we ever do a top 25 list for DC, I'm pretty sure that'll <laughs> crack the list. Yeah. Uh, and then they they came out with, with Criminal. Uh they came out with Criminal, and, and then from there, they pretty much did a whole bunch of creator-owned comics. And that that's one of the things that was great about Icon, is that it gave Marvel's top talents a chance to do their own comics. Yeah. So I think, from my understanding of what Icon was and what it represented, it was it's more of a line that just gives Marvel's current talent a chance to publish their own comics, but still retain ownership. Yeah. So... Uh, I guess it was. It's kind of an alternative to Image, although everybody s- seems to say that Image has the best deal around town. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, <laughs> Criminal is all the reprintings of Criminal and the most recent couple issues of Criminal are published under Image because Brubaker and Phillips own it. Yeah. They can take it wherever they want and publish it however they want. But after Criminal, they also did uh, Incognito. Fatal, yeah. The Fade Out, and the current se- series, Kill or Be Killed, which is an awesome series. So they did all this work together. And if you look at their other comics, like Sleeper, um, and compared to, to Criminal, the art in Criminal is, I would, again, I would say it's disciplined because the way that Phillips lays it out, it's every page is a three-tier grid. I don't know if you guys noticed that. But if you if you look at it, every every single page is a three tier grid. I, I don't think he ever uses any real splash pages, or if he does, they're they're pretty rare. Yeah. Um. But he doesn't he doesn't use the flashy layouts that we know he's capable of. Um. If you looked at Sleeper, for instance, 
you would see him drawing panels within panels and, and just these really clever design-oriented layouts. And here he, he just tells the story uh, using three three rows on each page. Mm. Okay, I see what... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so uh, in addition to, like, the actual pencil work, um, one of the things that I feel really needs to be mentioned is his... Uh, his shading in it is pretty excellent for yeah. for a comic that's trying to harken back to a very specific genre of uh, storytelling, which is noir. Mm -hmm. Like he does an excellent job of just using lighting to convey just the different moods and atmospheres that, yeah. that's going on. The inks within and the shadows yeah, exactly really convey that. <clears throat> uh, and the colorist uh, Val Staples did a great job too, just yeah. conveying mood. So th it feels like things are colored pretty realistically, but they're also colored in a way that's really moody as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's still... Yeah, like I'm looking at over uh, Shanice's shoulder here, and there are these panels w that have like green and red, and they're still green and red, but yeah. it's not like they... They're not, they're not garish. hyper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not hyper bright or anything it's like that. It's kind of this yeah. subdued uh, color palette yeah. that kind of conveys that whole sense of tiredness yeah because they 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 inhabit this world and the story that's very grim and basically about people horrible things happening to people yeah there is an ugly world and you know it's kind of like it's a much much better version of a snack zack snyder film <laughs> where, where zack snyder feels like Everything has to be in bronze <laughs> because bronze is cool and it makes it look old and sepia toned or whatever. <laughs> but it's it's much more subtle and um, I I have a great appreciation for the coloring as well as the uh, again like we sh we said earlier the shading of it all. Yeah, he's he draws in this very realistic and detailed style. Yeah, um, and going back to that whole thing I mentioned about the th three tier grid, I think. One thing that really does as a for you as a reader is it yeah. it it affects the pacing of the stories in a really effective way. It's kind of like when you read one of those old school pulp crime novels mm. and the way that they're paced kind of reflects how these comics are paced where things the beats happen and there are certain panels that are that get focused on but they're all within the context of the overall layout. Yeah. So n nothing ever really stands out more so because all of these moments that happen, yeah, they all build upon each other, and you get that that rhythm to it from seeing uh, this this pattern repeat yeah. over and over. Uh, do you have any thoughts, either of you, on like just the way he draws people and their like body language or their figures? Yeah, I mean, he draws people. Uh, it's in a, in a realistic way. There. Yeah. The way that they just look like people who have lived hard lives. Yeah, basically, it's, it's not overly exaggerated, and their body language reflects, you know, their just what you said. Their the the fact that they've lived hard lives. They're you know. Yeah, I I did want to talk about uh, the last story that they did, uh, the last of the innocent. Yeah. In in this comic, uh, just as a brief summary, it's it's about it takes place in the early '80s, and it's basically kind of 
it's funny because it's kind of a dark inverted version of Archie. Yeah. You know, Archie comics. <clears throat> yeah. So you got a guy who's like a grown up version of Archie and he's ended up marrying this, you know, the their analog for Veronica. Yeah, basically, what if Archie had grown up, he made a decision between Betty and Veronica, yeah. and he clearly chose the wrong one, yeah. and he's miserable, <laughs> yeah. is basically the idea. Exactly. You know, and he's decided, he comes back home, and he wants to, you know, and it just... He wants to get with Betty. Yeah, it, all these old feelings come back. His, and his life is horrible, and what's, yeah. what does he do? What's a man to do? Yeah. He gotta <laughs> kill his wife. <laughs> Uh, we don't uh, condone killing Yeah, we don't, wives. we don't <laughs> condone that, nor do we recommend it. Yes. Uh, we are merely summarizing the content of a <laughs> fictional story that we read. Yes. But do you first not recommend it and then clarify that you don't condone it? Or do you first not condone it and then not recommend it? Well, I'm going to say that we do both of those things at the same time. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. We are not liable for <laughs> any anything that results as an outcome of listening yes. to our voices. Yes. So, um, what were you gonna say about the the Last of the Innocent specifically in terms of the art? What what what's notable about it? I think the thing that's notable about this one is that they throw in these flashback sequences, and Phillips draws them in this sort of pseudo Archie style, <coughs> which is a lot of fun because they're they're kind of these one page gags, and they're really dark, but they're really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, it's it's something that. I think you can only really do in comics. Yeah. Yeah. He's imitating a certain style of comics from an era that's bygone and past. And it's so perfect because this, uh, one of the big themes of this whole storyline is nostalgia. Yeah. And what's more nostalgic than looking at comics from, you know, the 50s or 60s, whenever Archie was in his heyday. It also allows him to explore the darkly humorous part of the story where Mm -hmm. in his current life, the main, I won't say protagonist, in that sense but the main character stuff is going down that's just going to be horrible you don't necessarily like him but you go in this flashback and it's still imperfect it's like still an imperfect archie world yeah but you're still but you're okay with him there because he's you know a teenager he him just like amongst his friends they're trying to discover themselves they're trying to figure out who they want to be aside from who they want to be with mm-hmm. but also fumbling and just servicing these seeds being planted of how they become who they are without needing all that necessary origin story detail. Yeah. They give you, Brubaker and Phillips give us everything that we need in order to understand yeah. what we need to understand. They don't go overboard throwing a bunch of garbage at us yeah. that isn't necessary. <clears throat> they, the, the story and the, the storytelling is just so tightly, tightly yeah. uh, executed. Yeah, I, I just, yeah, I mean, just to kind of piggyback on what you said, like, it's really a testament to just how talented Sean Phillips is to be able to go back and forth between, you know, this really gritty, modern, um, you know, noir sort of art style, mm-hmm. uh, like, realistic art style that he's telling for uh, most of the comic, and then switching between that and that, again, that really cartoony, um, vintage sort of Archie style yeah. of uh, comics. But so and it, his his covers too. His covers are painted. Yeah, his yeah. pulp style. It's yeah, really impressive work. But yeah. those flashback pages also like capture a certain sense of innocence. Like even those characters in those flashback sequences. I think one of them is finally discovers or loses his V card yeah. uh, to the new girl on the block for the the Dark Veronica. Mm-hmm. His best friend is you know 
smoking joints and yeah. there was yeah. one scene where he's this friend that's it's focused on his friend where his friend's high and just walks out of his house and is walking around yeah there. I think Brookview in the ev- in the nighttime that was their drug head yeah yeah and he eventually like he just like he shares like what he saw this time when he's walking like yeah. in a certain aspect despite the fact that he's clearly like uh, a drug addict and he's high and mother might otherwise be a loser and pathetic yeah there's an instance in which he views the small town yeah. that he himself is touched by, like, like the things he wouldn't see otherwise. And you kind of forget who he is, and you kind of realize, oh, yeah, he's still just a kid. He's still seeing this world this way. Yeah. And it's conveyed so much more clearly through this, like, Archie style of art. Like, you feel that instance. It's, yeah. It's really interesting just because, again, like... As a reader, when you look at it, and it, you know, uh, when you look at those Archie comics in real life, it's like, oh, this is kind of cheesy or corny or whatever. But uh, the thing, I guess, that he interjects in this comic is just that sense of reality that, yeah, they were kind of funny. Like, these are kind of funny bits or gags or whatever, but, like, it's there's this sense that behind the scenes <laughs> that there's you know these people would have had issues you yeah. know there's there's a, there's a dark reality to it <laughs> so let's go into the writing a little bit um like in terms of uh ed brubaker's uh contribution to it i mean we've yeah. we've discussed uh sean phillips and his artwork and um yeah like just any thoughts that you guys might have on um ed brubaker and what he's trying to do here he just sells me on his characters yeah. Like in in both this first uh, miniseries he did with Sean Phillips and the last story, which I kind of more recently read, you don't necessarily hate the main characters. They are terribly flawed, mm-hmm. but you understand their motivations and you kind of feel for why they might want to do what they do, why they're trying to escape yeah. whatever situation they're in. Yeah. And. But he also gives us the reasonable stumbling blocks it's not just they're going to go through the motions and this will be what it is Mm -hmm. and you're also surprised because you're almost expecting it to end a certain way not because it's going to be stereotypical because you think this should be a natural consequence of what's happening Mm -hmm. but you're still surprised by what happens but you're okay with the ending it you don't feel like it was a cop-out you don't feel like it was a lazy approach yeah you actually like the way it works out yeah and the characters have their arc or in some sense they get kind of what they want or what they deserve out of this. Mm. And like, and within either case, you have five issues or four issues. That's really not a lot of pages to tell the kind of story that he would want. Like the complexity of stories is, is, is amazing with what he does with four to five issues. It's almost kind of, uh, maximizing the minimalist nature. Yeah. Of yeah. It. yeah. But it's still something that I could like, if I saw it as a movie, I'd feel like, That'd be like a solid two-hour movie that I'd never be bored with, and feel like I got—I just got the juice of all the characters and. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, going back to the Last of the Innocent, which we were just talking about, uh, one of the things that stands out about this story is—it's that when Brubaker writes it, he's not just writing just a, a plain old. Uh, crime story about someone who wants to plot to murder his wife but it's a story that actually touches on 
basically universal themes, like the theme of nostalgia and yeah. the theme of like looking back at the past with with these sort of rose-colored lenses. Yeah. Which is oddly enough like a pretty big like noir theme, right? Yeah. A lot of the times, a lot of those are about flawed characters that are mm-hmm. just you know deeply troubled pasts, and I think it's fair to say that all of uh, his characters, there's no real. I mean, I guess there's a point of view character, but they're not. It, it's again that uh, noir trope where everyone's sort of a bad dude. You're just kind of rooting for the least bad dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There aren't really clean-cut heroes <laughs> yeah. to be found. Just characters that you can, if not empathize with, you can understand them. Yeah. And I think w- one thing that really helps that is Brubaker's talent with narration. Yeah. The way he he writes. Uh, their internal dial, their internal monologues, um, yeah, and even dialogue between characters, he's he's able to do that in a way where you capture the essence of the character, but they're not they're not necessarily neurotic or or bizarre like that, but they kind of behave and think the way that you would believe somebody yeah. in that situation would yeah. be pushed to be- to behave. Yeah, I kind of wanted to jump on that uh, idea as well. Like, we had this conversation not too long ago where uh, I I don't want to go on too much of a tangent or anything, but we another writer who does a lot of crime comics is Brian Michael Bendis, and we've discussed him on this podcast before. And he, yeah, he's he's done the crime noir comic. I would say they're like brothers in arms or something. Yeah, totally, man. And Bendis uh, helped uh, Brubaker start at Marvel, I think. Yeah, that totally yeah. makes sense to me. Like they're they're both they both have very indie styles, mm-hmm. so it's yep. it totally I, it's totally believable for me. But the thing that I I noted upon reading it, Criminal this time around um, was that the way Bendis writes uh, characters is that there's he tries to mimic what real people talk like, and mm-hmm. that's when when you're a reader and you're reading dialogue sometimes that's kind of annoying or you know it's you don't want people to sound the way real people talk i mean that's part of the reason why you're reading something right yeah and uh i commented to drew that the thing that i do uh like about brubaker is that their inner monologue is i wouldn't say it's poetic but there's there's a substance to it it reminds me of the great pulp writers that i mentioned earlier like raymond chandler uh and and uh, Ross McDonald. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, there. It, I never get the sense that he's pushing the boundaries of the spectacular by like doing like overly grand dialogue. Like th- this isn't him doing, you know, um, the Infinity Gauntlet or something. <laughs> this is him, you know, doing deep conversations between you know two people or one guy analyzing a situation and just kind of letting his you know, his uh, character flaws just kind of shine through in what yeah. he says. It's it's very believable, and it's there's a good flow to it. Yeah. So. Also, like you were saying earlier, it's actually minimalist. I'm looking at some of these, like, inner monologue pieces, and they don't even sound like the uh, very wordy, like, picturesque, yeah. like, noir narratives. It's more like, yeah, these seem like very natural things somebody in a position would be thinking about if reflecting on his life experience and, like, where he needs to be going next in yeah. dealing mm-hmm. with the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to mention that um, the other thing about noir that, like, uh, a stylistic tick, I guess, of the old noir was that 
a lot of the dialogue used to be kind of over the top, right? Uh, like yeah. the, the old. I guess that's fair yeah. to say. A little I mean, hammy. Yeah. A little hammy. Yeah. yeah. There, I mean, there was, it was definitely recognizable. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think. Now a she lot here, kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's off to the it's off to the tailors with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who that was. I don't know who I was channeling there. <laughs> she do that more often though, at work especially. The le- the dame had legs from here to yeah yeah. <laughs> she could drive a man gaga. You see. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> off to the cleaners with you, Dick Tracy. <laughs> Keep going. No. <laughs> and an hour later. <laughs> I know. Uh, guys, that's going to be the rest of our podcast. <laughs> um, one of the things that I uh, remember hearing, too, and I think it was an old interview. I either read or listened to some podcast in, years ago with Brubaker. I remember he said uh, <laughs> when, when he retired, when he retires one day, one of his, his uh, dream gigs in his old age would just be to do Archie comics. Yeah. <laughs> so I always thought that was funny because yeah. he did this comic, The Last of the Innocent, and that's <clears throat> that's kind of a, a send-up to the, to the Archie era. And even if you look at one of his other comics, uh, one of his earlier works, it's not with Sean Phillips, but but uh, he did it for Vertigo uh, with Warren Police, Dead Enders. That's oh. sort of like a, a retro future science fiction Archie I kind of wonder if, this, if yeah. that's his like early secret resume to the Archie publication. It could be. He's like, hey, look what hey, I can do, guys. Hey, look, at it, this point... They should hire yeah, him. Yeah, they, they need the... Or they get more out of him than <laughs> <laughs> he would out of the yeah. Archie comics, Totally to be told. Uh, so, going down the list of um, our criteria for, you know, uh, what we have to say about this comic, what do you think of its originality? Like, how would you... Uh, how would you describe what your thoughts on that are? I think as far as the genre goes, it's very original. It's he he writes like I said earlier, he doesn't just write capers, he doesn't just write a heist story, he doesn't just write um a story about someone killing his wife. But those are just kind of the superficial plots that he uses to explore other thematic and emotional content and mm. and I think if, if you've read a lot of crime stories in general, a lot of times the crime stories end up just being about the crime. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that can be okay. If it's well done, it's still entertaining. But I think for, for most people, we like to read stories that are not just about the plot, but also about character and, and theme yeah. and, and something that goes beyond just, you know, the the surface level retread of the story of a murder and who done yeah, it, right? Yeah. yeah, like you were saying, uh, going back to The Last of the Innocent, the moment, you're like with a crime story too, like usually the crime happens very early on. Mm-hmm. In this case, the crime doesn't happen until the second issue, but the first notion of the crime being to be happening was the last panel of the first issue. Yeah. But after the crime happens, everything else beyond that point is just how this main character and now tries to hide his crime, but not so much the focus of the kind of the crime, but how he deals with the people around him. Mm. Yeah. Those connected to the person he's killed, mm-hmm. uh, his wife in this case, as well as his own friends as he tries to use them in a way to like try to get around. Like it becomes less about like him hiding the crime and because we're like just what kind of person he really is. Yeah. And what he gets away with. Yeah. And what he's willing to do in order to keep his crime hidden. Yeah. Right. 
to a point like the the last of the innocent, which I end up realizing was um, the love he wanted, because he now pulled her into his life. She no, she is not corrupted. She is no yeah. longer the innocent yeah. she was. She was the last of yeah. the innocent. <laughs> That's a really good reading of the story, man. Yeah, I think stuff like that that I think gives criminal its originality because yeah like i said anybody can do a story that's about someone killing his wife anyone yeah. can do a, a every heist year story. there's a heist movie coming yeah. out or some crime like but, but i want to know what is the movie ab- or what is the story about yeah. you know it, yeah. if it's if it's only about a heist like those are probably a dime a dozen but yeah. if it's if it's if you tell me it's a heist story but it's also about a guy who can't outrun his past and who ha- and um, you know, has these emotional problems that are related to the people that he's failed in, or around yeah, him. Or just poor decision-making. Yeah. Have you. What makes it so fascinating is that his character actually, maybe I've used the word developed, but he doesn't learn anything. He's just doing what he's always been doing, which is looking yeah. out for himself. Yeah, yeah. And that's fascinating. That's fascinating yeah. because you really expect a story where, like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to pay the price by doing what you're doing, but yeah. it's like, he's not the one paying the price and directly. He's paying the price through sacrificing his own friends and the relationships he has around him. And that itself is like really fascinating. Yeah. So I would say that's where the originality comes from yeah. in, in the execution. I mean, not necessarily like the subject matter. Yeah, because yeah. it, it it's it's crime yeah. stories. Yeah. There's there's been crime stories for who knows forever. how long, forever. It's, it's yeah. almost like the crime itself is the red herring. Yeah, and you're so yeah. focused on oh, what's gonna happen with like the the, yeah. the investigation, all this other stuff. It's like that's that's not the point. Yeah. 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 Okay, all right. Um, in regards to the impact, what 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 sort of impact, or like, how would you rate the level of impact that this comic ultimately made? I think uh, there are a few levels uh, that I, a few things that relate to the level of impact it had. None of them on their own are necessarily uh, earth shattering, but yeah. I think uh, cumulatively they're pretty important elements um yeah i'm just gonna kind of go through them like first of all like on a smaller scale uh i would say this kind of cemented brubaker and phillips partnership in producing creator-owned comics Mm. because ever since they did criminal together as far as i know they haven't done uh together they haven't done anybody else's characters or properties Mm. they've just been focusing on their own work and that's what i like to see man they're doing they're doing their own comics. And they're uh, doing it their way. And they're doing it their way. Um, a bunch of crime comics and things in that in that sort of uh, genre. So definitely thankful that Criminal was the one to kind of start that off. Mm. Second, uh, I think <coughs> Brubaker and Phillips might be the first prominent example of, of, of how the comics industry sort of is today in regards to creators uh, and doing creator-owned work because here's here's how I was thinking about it, right? Like in the past, a lot of times people, comic book creators, wanted to work for Marvel and DC and to do that, they would work on their own stuff in the independent scene. They would do their own comics through whether it was uh, like Caliber Comics or or even image, or just self-publish their own stuff, and and they would just put out work, and eventually they would hope to get noticed by the big two mm. and and start doing superheroes. And to a, to an extent, that's basically 
that's kind of how that's his uh, career essentially yeah, that's kind of how Brubaker uh got in right because he, yeah. he started off as an indie guy but I think with criminal they kind of showed that you could kind of take advantage of the big two as well yeah it works both ways exactly yeah, you could you could build up your <coughs> your career build up your yeah. bibliography build up your name yeah uh, doing stuff for the big two in this case for for Brubaker yeah he was doing he had, he had done some Batman in the past and a bunch of stuff for DC yeah and then he, he goes over to Marvel and he starts doing Captain America he yeah. starts doing Daredevil and these yeah. are really prominent well-regarded comics mm. and all of a sudden suddenly he's got the the clout to, to he's got the name recognition yeah, he's got the name recognition Marvel's Marvel's willing to let him own his own creations and yeah. they're offering to publish his comic yeah um, it's it's getting to it's gotten to a point where he did a lot of great work for Marvel and he like again like made some he, he did some stories that were tentpole stories yeah. for future projects yeah and once he did that like okay Marvel made their money off him but again he he just decided I'm gonna use my re- name recognition and I'm gonna take my following with me yeah and he's he's yeah. at a point in his career where he doesn't really need Marvel anymore. yeah and, and here's the thing too is that is that ever since I've noticed this with uh, Brubaker and Phillips, I yeah. think that's kind of the trend in comics now. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of uh, guys who who do really well at Marvel and DC, they end up just dropping away from them and just focusing yeah. on their creator-owned stuff. And a lot of them get published yeah. by Image. Um, I'm thinking of guys like Jonathan Hickman. Yeah, you know he he built his name with Fantastic Four and Avengers, Avengers. New Avengers, and mm. now he's just back doing his own thing. Yeah. Isn't Rucka in a similar boat? Rucka, uh, I think, I think he's, he's 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 someone yeah. kind of like Brubaker, where he yeah. he's done a lot of his own stuff. He's done a lot of stuff for the big two, and he still continues to do his mm-hmm. own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think someone like like a Jonathan Hickman or a Nick Spencer, where you know that they've built their name on uh, Marvel comics, yeah. and and then they end up going to going back to doing their own stuff at Image and. Yeah. And st- that stuff is, you know, what they're really known for. Yeah. You know, like Matt Fraction is another example. Yeah. It really feels like, I think the model up to a certain point was Marvel walked around with this. It, it almost felt like the idea was that we were going to, people want to work for us. Mm-hmm. So like, and they want to work for us for life. So we can kind of just set the terms on, on how they want to work with us but after this the 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 feeling the attitude amongst creators now is more along the lines of oh i just want to work for you just long enough to like build a fan base yeah exactly yeah. and like to market myself yeah you know so i i totally see what you mean in terms of how the impact of this is a l- it's less it's more behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much that the book itself, like, changed the medium per se, but, like, the the way that the business side of aspect of it mm-hmm. operated ended up changing a lot of attitudes mm-hmm. and opening up a lot of avenues for a lot of creators moving forward. I mean, it's like you said, a lot of these writers, it feels like they just create these contracts with Marvel to, to work for set amounts of time. And then when they're done, there's almost this immediate drop off and they're just gone, you know? Yeah. Like Jonathan Hickman, again, another good example where he just, he spent 
a good amount of years building his universe within... He was, he was a Marvel architect. He was an architect, exactly. And he built his universe uh, with, you know, the toys in their playground. But once his final arc on uh, Avengers and Secret Wars was over, he, he's kind of nowhere to be seen. And But his image stuff is still going strong. He's still yeah. doing East east of West. He's still doing uh, Manhattan projects. And he's he's still got more things coming out even now. You know, mm-hmm. he's announced a whole bunch of a slew of stuff coming out. Mm-hmm. So, so, you, so I, it feels like what Brubaker and Phillips accomplished through Criminal and the Icon Imprint was to remind these creative teams that, yeah, you want to work for the big two because that's where you can get a good contract. You can get your name out there more widely. Mm-hmm. But like, hey, but remember... Why did you want to write comic books? Because you wanted to tell stories. Yeah. These are not your stories. Yeah. These are the big company stories. Marvel's always going to own Spider-Man, yeah. the Fantastic right. Four, the and Avengers. Do you want to be an adult in your late career saying, I'm still writing stories, somebody's telling me to write? Yeah. You're writing because you want to tell those stories yeah. of that, that are sitting in your head. And this reminds them, like, yeah, you should make those big contracts, make your name out there, make whatever money you can, and then be like, all right, I'm I'm gonna escape out into the world and do my thing. I'm I'm an I'm I'm an I'm an adult of this industry now. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. I don't need you to handhold me and tell me what you want to create just so I can yeah get people to like me. And truth be told, like Marvel's <clears throat> Marvel and DC aren't necessarily known for treating their writers well. You know, their creators their creators well. Yeah. Like you know, there are a bunch of people who you know now that they're at the end of their careers or like you know further down they they're not necessarily financially successful you know so brew baker kind of taking his own lesson from this which is hey he he looked at someone like robert kirkman who did the walking dead and was like you know what i can make my own thing and i can become a success mm-hmm. on my own and like i'm not gonna be dependent on just these two companies yeah yeah. yeah, totally. And I think the the final uh, big impact that Criminal had on comics was how it basically started a trend of crime comics. Yeah. Because the early and mid-2000s, there were, there were some other crime comics going on, like, for sure. Like, Bendis did a lot of indie stuff. There was 100 Bullets by Azzarello and, and all sorts. I mean, Sin City, of course, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that that was floating around. But I think... Once Criminal came out, it was it was almost like the floodgates just opened, right? Like yeah. there were a whole bunch of other it was crime in stories. Fashion com- again. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. in fashion again. Well, wasn't yeah. it? Wasn't around that time when DC created new other new imprint of just dedicated crime yeah. novellas? The Vertigo Crime. Yeah, the Vertigo oh, Crime. Yeah. 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 It's like okay, they did that. Marvel had Marvel Noir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, where they took uh, well-known Marvel characters and placed them in the setting of. A film noir type of world. Yeah. So you had Daredevil growing up on the mean streets and Luke Cage, you know, working with the gangs or working against the gangs. Yeah, I don't even really know how much that, how different that is from the actual. (laughs) Yeah. It's like they just wanted to throw the the word noir in the title because it was a, it was a buzzword, you know, and I think part of that is because of Criminal. Yeah. You had stuff like, uh, Two guns from from Boom Studios that ended yeah. up being made into a movie. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff that I can't even remember off the top of my yeah. head. Well, they made Bing Bad look good again. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Well said. Do you, uh, what would you do? You guys have anything to say about the 
the book's ability to withstand the te- test of time. I mean, we've we've sort of discussed the dialogue. We've mm-hmm. discussed, uh, you know, that Brubaker does have the ability to capture, like, you know, realistic dialogue and yeah. that's believable but elegant in a way. Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that these were set in certain time periods, there's not enough influence of those time periods where yeah. you felt it was glued to being, oh, it only makes sense in the context of what we know about this era. Mm. Yeah. it's It just informs the world they're in, mm. but you could place them in either time era, and yeah. it's about the story of, of people, not about... Exactly. About things. And, and because the dialogue is also very natural, yeah. you don't feel... It's, the, the dialogue itself, its style of writing isn't... It's like, oh, this is just the style of this. It's like, it just feels like you wouldn't know. If you yeah. didn't know the copyright or publication date, you're like, you could read this yeah. over and over and over again and you would still appreciate it. It's, it's fresh and modern and it yeah. sounds natural. It, yeah. it doesn't sound like quaint or old-fashioned or antiqui- antiquated. antiquated. Yeah, in fact, we were talking about this last night because it's like, I thought I forgot I read Coward and I read it again at Drew's place last night. It's like, no, I read this before, mm. but I was still as wild as it as I yeah. was when I read it, I think it was four or five years ago. Yeah. yeah. And if that doesn't tell you if it t- stands with stands the test time, yeah. the comic history has changed a lot in the past five years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, nope, this is still probably one of the best things I've read. Yeah. And I think another thing that kind of adds to it <clears> is, <throat> is the fact that over the course of the 20-some, like, I forget exactly, like 26 or 27 issues that were published under Marvel, mm. they did a few more issues that were published that were published by Image. But if we're just strictly talking about the Marvel series, um, if you read if you read them all uh, again in the future, I think you can. Every time you reread them, you pick up new things because this world is intertwined, and each of the different stories that 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 they did uh, features characters that kind of cross over in really subtle ways, not not in ways that that are like he's not drawing <clears throat> attention to. Yeah, it. They, they're <laughs> yeah. not like crossovers, but yeah. they're just appearing within each other's worlds and yeah. I think you just pick up little details and, and things like that yeah. with every successive reread and this is something that I'll definitely continue to go back to yeah it's like a really subtle shared universe <laughs> yeah yeah. you're just compelled to revisit these characters you just because like the, whatever m- mind Rubica has to conceive of these characters and write them the way he does it's like yeah, like you just need. To, I would like. I would want to read the Last of the Innocent again. Probably, I wouldn't say like soon enough, mm. even though I kind of just read it, because it's like the main character to me. Despite the fact he doesn't learn anything, he's still complex to me in the sense of like just how he views the world, just so simply, but yet is able to do what he does, and it just it astounds me that this is a character who, I'm like, whose end of the story was like, okay. That works for me. Yeah. Mm. And, like, I get it. You know, it had to, in a way, it, it almost, like, it made sense it had to end the way it did. Yeah. Definitely. This is, it's one of the best, man. It's one of the best. It's, that's why it's on our list, Drew. Yep. It makes me, yeah, it just makes me wish Rubik was my, was my close friend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you guys. you could oh, find his email address I and could. email him. Yeah, just, you know, e-stalk him, like, write me a story. <laughs> <laughs> you guys ready to move on to the next one? Sure. We're pushing up close to uh, an hour. It's already been 50-something minutes. What do you think? Should we uh, continue um, on? or? Yeah, let's just try to do another 30. Yeah, is okay. That, is that cool? Yeah. Okay. So I'm the guest. I have no say. Yeah. 
Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, ch- I'm chained to my chair. I really can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a slightly extra longer episode just because Shanus is here. So, you know, we're celebrating. All right. Yeah. So coming in at number 13, we have, like I said at the beginning of the show, we were going to talk about a couple of comics today that were from different imprints. So we had Criminal f- from the Icon <laughs> Comics imprint. And... <clears throat> Next, coming in at number 13, we've got Savage Sword of Conan. Yep. That was published by Marvel's Curtis Magazine's imprint back in, originally back in uh, <coughs> 1974. So here's a little little background for, for this comic. Uh, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you've heard of Conan the Barbarian. So he was a sword and uh, sorcery kind of pulp fiction fantasy character from the from the earlier part of the 19th century or 1900s and uh, right around the time uh, I think around 19 late 60s early 70s uh, I guess Marvel started snapping up uh, different licenses to, to do different comics based on existing things and and one of the things was uh, Conan mm. so actually this isn't savage sword of Conan isn't the first Conan comic that Marvel published. They actually <coughs> did a normal comic book that was just called Conan the Barbarian back in that debuted in uh, 1970. But it ended up becoming a big hit, uh, uh, became very popular, and they had uh, a magazine imprint uh, called Curtis Comics or Curtis Magazines. And this, these magazines at the time, they, weren't, they were not beholden to the Comics Code authorities. So w- that basically meant that Marvel was permitted to show more intense content. Yeah. Like, they, they didn't go so far as to show, like, a bunch of nudity or sex as far as I know, but it's definitely racier. a lot of... <laughs> it's a lot racier. There's it's definitely implied. Is there... Is it? There's... You, you see some things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, there is nudity. I don't remember, like, really pornographic sex or anything no, like no it wasn't it's pornographic but yeah. you saw things that you would typically not see it's like like a rated r movie yeah yeah, 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 ex- yeah. yeah. they just show enough just sh- they yeah. show just enough for the movie industry to be like nope rated r yeah mm-hmm. exactly even though you're not really a fan you're like okay i've seen this before yeah and and these magazines were all uh bigger dimensions than your typical comic they were yeah. more pages and they were all in black and white so they were definitely uh designed to appeal to a more uh, adult audience Mm. So, Savage Sword of Conan uh, debuted in 1974. It was <clears throat> the the chunk of Savage Sword of Conan that uh, is on our list is probably about the first 60 issues or so that are uh, written by Roy Thomas and drawn by illustrated by a variety of artists, but primarily John Buscema and f- uh, a few other guys who are all like really good artists. Yeah. Barry Windsor Smith is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Neil Adams drew some issues. Yeah. A lot of a lot of uh, uh, old masters. Yeah, yeah drew yeah. these. Comics. I can totally see it. Of uh, yeah, uh, like which I think that's probably a good segue into like our first, uh, the first thing that we're gonna discuss, which is the art style of the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, th- I like you said, a lot of these masters drew it and. Um, I think the art is one of the bigger pulls for this book yeah, uh, in particular. I, I feel that um, looking at it again, it really does remind me of... 
it reminds me of the EC comic stuff, to be yeah. honest. Like, uh, so we mentioned Seduction of the Innocent a little bit earlier. Yeah. And for people that don't really know, the that was uh, this, was it like an essay? It was a book. It was a book written by this gentleman who basically blamed all of society's ills on comics. Yeah, written back in the 50s, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a psychologist. He was a, yeah, so... Don't don't listen to psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there another psychologist, Spock, who also like said some things? People were like, "Oh, this sounds great." And now they're like, mm, it "Wasn't necessarily the best for society." Well, I don't, I don't. Probably, know. yeah. Well, that's video games and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah. This guy, uh, Frederick Wortham, he he basically started a, a fear across the country yeah. about comics to the point where. Uh, EC Comics, who was a big publisher at the time, they published a lot of horror, crime, crime and yeah. science fiction, and fantasy. Yeah. Even, yeah, they, they published a lot of more adult-oriented uh, stuff that wasn't just superhero genre stuff. Yeah. And he basically got them to shut down. Shut down, exactly. Yeah. But they they had a lot of artists that were just excellent at just drawing terror and viscera mm -hmm. and just... In, it, in a very realistic style, yeah, too. Yeah. Like, if you've ever seen Tales from the Crypt, that's, yeah. that's basically it. That's you know? one of theirs. Yeah. So, um, but it really feels like this is... I, when did you say this came out again? I think the first issue was published in 1974. Yeah, so there's been an absence of uh, an outlet for that style of comic for a while. Yeah. Of EC Comics, of the terror that, you know, that they used to... That used to have a place in horror comics from EC. But that's the thing that's interesting about this. Like, you, you have Conan, this, uh, you know this sword-wielding hero and what's he doing he's fighting demons and ghouls and like all sorts of just people yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it must be 1974 or 1975 mm -hmm. yeah do you guys have any other <clears throat> thoughts on like his art style oh i love the lines or on like, the art that's utilized in the book sorry Go art meaning like I, like what's notable about the art for you, for me, the the penciling, the shading, the lines, it's yeah. like. So I drew earlier about how we're talking about Conan the Barbarian, which mm -hmm. when people think about it, they might think like, "Oh, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger from that '80s movie, which we yeah. all love." What is best in life? <laughs> oh man, I forget the whole lines. Oh, oh. You, oh okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the, the lamentations, lamentations of, of the, the women. women. Yeah. Right. It's the last one I always remember. That the other one. Um, and so you're speaking this this big hulking guy with rippling muscles and muscles yeah. unmuscles because that seems to be the art trend of like just man as if he has like muscles all over the place. Yeah. But no, it's like Conan has like the very natural muscular form. Like mm -hmm. you know, you can tell he's strong, and when you need to see his muscles, they're visible there. But it's not to the point of like ridiculousness. It's just yeah. like he doesn't like, have a bunch of veins popping out. He doesn't have a bunch of like cross hatching. Yeah. No. <laughs> And like, and, like, every character is drawn so uniquely. Yeah. And, like, then the black and white contrast, it's just, like... Yeah. You don't care if there's no color. You still see the world just yeah. fine. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the advantages of, of this... Uh, the fact that it was black and white. So, th the artists, I think all of them understood that, that because it's black and white, they were yeah. able to kind of control how the final art looked uh, yeah. with their inker. 
And when you look at some of the, the color uh, comics of that era, a lot of times the colors end up being kind of garish because of the limited uh, printing abilities mm-hmm. back in the 70s. But because these are already black and white, they're designed to be consumed as black and white comics. The artist put a lot of thought into shading yeah. and and the tones of, of how the final work actually is supposed to look. Even yeah. the hair has character, which is yeah, Yeah, the, the hair's really textured. I mean, I think out of all the artists that have worked on it, uh, B- John, Buscema, John Buscema is my favorite. Mm. He's, he's definitely one of my favorite all-time artists in general. He's a long-time uh, Marvel Comics artist. Yeah. He did a whole bunch of stuff for them, but yeah. I think his Conan stuff in, in Savage Sword is my favorite from him. Yeah, I... I mean, this isn't really... I don't know if anyone hearing my part of this is really going to get anything from it, but it really, like... It, it just feels like it's a really beautiful book. <laughs> like, yeah. the the women and the men are, like, just beautiful to look at, and, like, the things that are pretty are pretty, and the things that are ugly are truly grotesque. I was, I was about to say before you started talking, I was going to yeah. say the same thing. It's like, the people who are showing a certain degree of elegance, even if they're slave girls or just yeah. random guys, they're all drawn away. Like you can tell, like oh, this is a plain kind of looking person. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is really meant to be a beautiful kind of person. Even like the woman involved here, she has a certain like slightly aged beauty, but you can tell she's beautiful despite the fact that she does look a little worn. Yeah, and then the ugly characters are ugly. Yeah. Without needing to be overly grotesque, yeah. you 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 understand the pressure, and you're and you're you know and you're like you're drawn away from that. Like, yeah. okay, this is who this is. Yeah, I mean, and to add to that, the it's it's almost kind of the opposite of what criminal was, which <clears throat> we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. where like criminal works a lot of on 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 a lot of subtleties, but here everything's drawn to this really epic scale, you know, yeah. like. Everything's just a painting, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Are you, uh... Oh, no, I don't... I wasn't gonna add anything. Okay, okay. So, uh, now we're gonna move on to the writing of the actual book itself. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, the the Conan that we're discussing right now is written by Roy Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Any... Well, so you've just, Shanus, you just sort of uh, skimmed re- through it. I have recent exposure. I've yeah. read actually a handful of stories at this point from, I think, Volume 2 of the collection. And I mean, I'll, I'll say this much. I'm constantly reminded that uh, Conan has bronze skin and blue eyes. <laughs> so it's, it's nice to reminded about that. Yeah. Um, but the writing is just fun. It's like... Because the, the names of the places almost like have a biblical style. Mm. approach them like the Catholians, um the Shemites. yeah there's a certain sense of like mythology of like this could be the mythology of some yeah. other world yeah and and you feel so invested in conan's adventures that yeah like even if you don't know all these different things like there's a richness to it there's like he's like this is the myth told through his journey in the cycle of like these realms around him yeah but each story is just also just so fascinatingly different. It's not... It's called the Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian. And they keep referencing him as the Barbarian. But, like, he's not a barbarian. He's just a guy who's just trying to find some adventure in life, effectively. But 
because in every story, right, he doesn't act purely like a barbarian, like that you would expect a barbarian to be like. He's not. And in fact, and in fact, anytime you refer to him as a barbarian, he like the art that he's drawn with. He's like, he's like, he's not pleased being called barbarian. He's like, I'm Conan the Sumerian. Yeah, mm. that's true. And that's so that's an interesting thing, you know. I think I think that's because in in their world, I'm like I'm sure as it would be in our world to be called a barbarian to your face would be an insult. It's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think. We understand that Conan's a barbarian. He's, he doesn't consider consider himself uh, Civil? civilized. <laughs> right. And he doesn't care for that. But yeah. He doesn't care for it. Yeah. yeah. But in regarding the storytelling, I love it. Yeah. I have never read Conan before, and I read two stories in the past 24 hours. So I'm like, oh, neat. Science fiction as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, there were two different stories that involved, effectively, aliens. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you know mm-hmm. what? I'm I'm okay with that. And it's still within the realm of fantasy. Like, why not have weird stuff? But it's yeah, like weird, yeah. cool stuff. I'm like, this is a really nice idea. It's yeah. creative. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel like Conan, especially as a property, is something that requires a lot of world building. So it's it's meant to be consumed <clears throat> on an epic scale, right? I mean, yeah. he's, he's a swordsman, and he has to face... You know, he's basically the most badass swordsman... Of his world, you yeah. know? Um, tell tell the story that you were um, discussing about the, the, the one where he's crucified. And oh, just, yeah. Just as a primary example <clears throat> of just how much of a badass he is. Yeah, so the story that uh, I was talking about earlier off offline uh, with Albert and, and Shanus was... It, w- it was a story uh, called A Witch Shall Be Born and... And I believe this story was based on one of uh, Robert E. Howard's stories. So Robert E. Howard was the creator of Conan. So he wrote, Robert E. Howard wrote uh, the Conan uh, pulp novels and and short stories um, back in the day. And a lot of the stuff that you read in Savage Sword of Conan, Roy Thomas adapts most of Robert E. Howard's stories. And he also adapts ends up adapting uh, some of the pastiche stories that were written by other writers down the line, and he also created <coughs> <his own> stories <coughs> as well. But I'd probably say my favorite stories are the ones that are that are direct adaptations of Robert E. Howard's, Howard's work. And A Witch Shall Be Born is a story that has this really incredible scene where Conan ends up coming afoul of, of these uh, enemy soldiers, and he's just initially uh overwhelmed due to sheer numbers right and then and then they end up uh crucifying him on a on a an x-shaped tree and just leaving him out in the desert uh to to basically die die. yeah Yeah. and uh if you read the the whole sequence it's it's really intense because this guy's just talking junk to conan while conan's on the tree and then everybody, all the enemy soldiers, just walk away and leave Conan to his fate. So he's there trying to like wrangle his way off the crucifix, and he's got nothing he can do. At one point, uh, a vulture comes in, flies in, basically tries to feed on this guy that looks pretty helpless. And Conan, he's he he's getting clawed and and pecked pretty <laughs> savagely, yeah. and he just looks desperate at some point. And then a bunch of other vultures start flying around him, waiting for him to die. So he gets so mad, one of these vultures f- finally flies down kind of close to Conan's head. 
and Conan dodges at the last minute and then ends up biting this vulture <laughs> in the neck. He bites the vulture in the neck, breaks his neck, and kills the vulture that way. <laughs> and he eats him. He's eating him right on the cross. Yeah. So, just, so that's his way of just staying alive. Like, how much... Can you imagine a civilized folk doing that? <laughs> Would this person even think of doing that? Yeah. He's Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And I then, <laughs> so he's he's hanging there, uh, you know, dazed and tired from the ordeal. And then these other horsemen end up uh, coming up to him. And, and they're like, oh, I know who this is. This, this is a Sumerian. He used, to, he used to be a captain with the Queen's Guard or whatever. And they end up uh, basically saying, hey, we'll let fate uh, decide what's going to happen to you. So, so... One of them takes an axe and says, we're going to chop down the, the supports that are holding up the crucifix. And if you fall on your face and die, well, that's that. But if you fall backwards, maybe you'll survive. And, you know, if you can get out then, then whatever happens to you, um, we'll, we'll maybe, maybe we'll help you. Yeah. So they, they chop him down and he falls backwards so he doesn't get crushed by the, tr- by the crucifix. He ends up falling on his back and then they end up these horsemen end up uh, pulling out some of the nails that are keeping him down. Yeah. And he ends up managing to survive. He gets, they, they have a spare horse. They're like, okay, why don't you ride on this horse with us through the desert? And if you can survive without dying of thirst, maybe you'll have some water when we get back to our camp. So, of course, he manages to survive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On sheer hate. On sheer hate. (laughs) Like, just the whole thought of revenge is just powering him the whole time. He wants to get those people who put him there in the first place. And, yeah, he ends up surviving. And, spoiler alert, he gets his revenge. Yeah. It's it's just a testament to just how much of a, again, how much of a badass he is. It's a testament to the savagery of a barbarian. Yeah. It also reminds me of this this story here where like he's facing up with this guard and just yeah. have, they're having a choke off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and Conan is actually smaller than the guy who's choking him, but Conan's just like standing so, there. So, so the guy just like starts giving in because his neck isn't strong enough. Yeah. <laughs> they're just standing there choking each other. <laughs> and like it's just super intense. It's pretty <clears throat> impressive, like it, the body language of it yeah, all. Like, yeah, like it, it's it's really uh intense to read because the way that that i think neil adams drew this one uh that that we're looking at right now and and conan and his enemy are just using all the sinews and 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 their muscles and you can really see the strain uh being wrought upon their bodies while they're trying to break each other's necks (laughs) (laughs) and and at the end of it i don't remember the the dialogue uh verbatim but conan's basically like you might have thought you were strong breaking the necks of civilized folk, <laughs> but until you can break the neck of a wild Sumerian bull, don't even try this. And then he just snaps the dude's neck. <laughs> and then you and then you just that see... That's pretty accurate. That's what it says right here. <laughs> and then you just see the guy's body crumpled on the floor. Yep. And the final panel is Conan with a scornful look on his face. And I like how they just added that panel of a scornful look. He's like, I can't believe this guy tried. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts on how original this was? Like, we, we included this on our list, and, um, like, there... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I think, in terms of originality, it, it would be 
tough to say that it's wholly original. Yeah. Mainly because it's based on a character that has existed in pulp novels and short stories. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's based, like, a lot of the best stories are based, they're adaptations exactly. of existing stories. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it's not really fair, but, but uh, you know, I probably in good conscience couldn't really give it too high of a score in terms yeah. of originality. As a comic book, I mean, right? As a comic book, right. yeah. But as, as, as original material of stories, like where yeah. it might come from, like, like I was saying earlier, the fact that, you know, Ronnie Howard threw in there. Yeah. Um, he was a really good writer. He was like, mm. yeah, I'm going to throw aliens in there. I'm going to throw an atomic bomb in there. Mm-hmm. Like, people like talk about like, oh, how much fun, like Cowboys versus Aliens was the movie that came out a few years ago. And it's like, and in my mind, I didn't think they'd ever mix fantasy and science fiction in such a weirdly contrasted way. Mm-hmm. Think about Star Wars being a science fantasy, but it wasn't like you had obvious witches and magic and dragons, and then you had lightsabers and science. It was just it was a fantasy setting for a science-driven story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But here, you, you literally get aliens and technology, and Khan's like. Yep, I don't know what this is, but I'm gonna kill it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna kill it. I'm just gonna go do my thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think the thing with technology, it, it's not, it's not something that's commonplace. Like, not every story is him. No, I don't. Really, I, don't mean, I don't mean to get every story, isn't it? But the fact yeah. that he actually still had stories like that interspersed in there. Uh, yeah, because I think with Robert E. Howard, he was writing stories where uh, he wasn't afraid to introduce. I I don't even know if you'd call it social commentary, but he. He kind of had an understanding of 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 the, the world basically, yeah. and and he wasn't even though he was writing these stories about uh, sword and sorcery, he was still writing stories that I think are still re- uh, relatable to to anybody. Mm. Like you don't have to like the the thing with with Conan is is that when he encounters those aliens, I'm not e- even sure if. At, he initially understands what's going on, but oh. it's like you as the reader, you're like, oh wow, he's looking into a like a time portal or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 like yeah. he's looking into something that that is beyond human uh, imagination, and and he sees it, and somehow, even though he's uh, you know primitive by our standards, he he understands to a certain extent what he's looking at, but his mind isn't broken, and yeah, and it's not something that he dwells on too much. I'm just more I'm yeah. just more admiring yeah. the fact that. <laughs> Yeah, I won't give it originality points because it's based on yeah. previous material. But yeah. being that this is my first time reading Conan, it's my first exposure to reading Conan. Yeah, like I was, I was awed by the fact that he had the force of saying, "Why should the only science fiction stories take place in the modern world? Yeah. Why couldn't you mix a bit of science fiction with fantasy, mm. but still keep it rooted to the fantasy work?" Conan is just like. He doesn't understand magic either. He just he just knows that he's an adventurer. He wants he to find yeah, the next. He doesn't score. like magic. Yeah, like magic. <laughs> he hates it. So for him, like he just understands that something's happening. He doesn't get it. So he's gonna be like, I don't want anything to do with that. It's he's he's the kind of guy who who basically hates what he fears. Yeah. And he fears what he doesn't understand. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think another thing. Uh, think that doesn't take it on the women. <laughs> Takes it out only on the on those evil guys. Well. Did you read, Albert, did you read the story? Uh, the, I think the first issue was uh, the Frost Giant's daughter, right? And you remember how it, it starts off with, with Conan uh, in, the, in the snow chasing this, this beautiful woman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He basically wants to ravage her. Yeah, he's just so driven by his passion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy <laughs> stuff, man. Like, 
in, in a way, it's like I'm not sure if the modern audience, if people today really would appreciate Conan. Yeah. If if they read like Conan at his purest, most base level. Yeah. Uh, there's almost the sense that he's he's kind of too brutal. You know, he's he doesn't appeal to a lot of modern sensibilities, but yeah. But he is what he is. And he is exactly. That he is, is what, what he is. is and yeah. That's what he is. You know? It's a it's a story. It's fiction. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that yeah, it's interesting that you would say that because <clears throat> to to try to do a version of him that like meets our modern sensibilities, it it wouldn't be true to form at all. <laughs> you know, it's like do you remember that when we were kids, there was that <laughs> co- like cartoon. Cor- yeah, Conan yeah. the Ar- Conan oh, yeah. the Adventurer. Yeah. yeah, it's like Conan the Executive Assistant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have a sexual harassment policy, Conan. Uh, yeah, Statute Nine. Yeah. No, the cartoon had him like they didn't want him like slashing at people, so his sword was a ma- of was made of a magic metal. Oh yeah, that would like absorb uh, the Snake Man into another dimension or something, something like that. <laughs> And he's always so happy and cheerful. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's a good way to segue into the next topic, which is the impact of Conan, you know, for mm-hmm. a guy, for for a property that was based off novels made, you know, decades ago. Yeah. Like, he's had an incredibly long lifespan. He's been around, you know, in various forms, and he's not just limited to, you know, those novels or the comics. Yeah. Like... But is the impact here and the influence of like the impact as a comic book or in the impact as Conan the Barbarian stories have had on? I think it's fair to say social. that uh, the Conan comics did a lot to revitalize and you know keep yeah. Conan in the consciousness of you know people and yeah. society. Because you know how you just said these comics were kind of the first exposure you've had to mm-hmm. Conan stories, and I think when they first came out. A lot of people at the time could say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Conan uh, is written by Robert E. Howard, his creator. Uh, he This character was made back in the early 30s, I believe. And and uh, Robert E. Howard, uh, he ended up committing suicide at some point. Mm. So he, wasn't, he didn't write these stories for a really extended period of time. So all we got from him was from a short span of time. Yeah. And Conan novels had been in print, I think, and people, other writers, basically were able to get the rights to continue more Conan stories. But I guess hardcore Conan fans were kind of divided on that because <clears throat> yeah. it wasn't the pure Robert E. Howard stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think these comics, uh, I mean, first of all, we, we have to go back to the original color Marvel comic that was called Conan the Barbarian. And I think that was a big thing in terms of just revitalizing Conan but kind of that uh, savage sword of Conan kind of goes hand in hand with that because this was like a more uh, unadulterated, pure version of the character. He was savage. Mm. He was savage. Yeah. He he was killing people. They weren't afraid to depict uh, violence and sexual content. And a lot of people... Uh, for like, them. Yeah, for a lot of people, this was... A, uh, big way they got into the character of Conan yeah. and the series lasted 200 something issues you know it didn't a long time. It, it didn't yeah. end until sometime in the 90s when when uh Marvel 
ended up losing the license, and, and then in the early 2000s, Dark Horse got the license. So if you ever want to reread uh, or find issues of Savage Sword of Conan, you either got to find the old magazines from from back in the day, or you can look for the Dark Horse comics reprints. Yeah. But uh, as I was saying, uh, I think these comics played a big role in revitalizing the Conan property. Yeah. They brought, Marvel brought Conan to the masses. Yeah. And without without these comics, it's arguable that, uh, like, who knows if Conan would still be a viable property today. Yeah. It's a fair point, because the, the Conan the Adventure cartoon came out in the early 90s, mm-hmm. which is around the time when they lost their license. That could have been, I don't know how that could have could have been like, hey, we lost licensed. So would the license went to somewhere else? And they're like, hey, this was a hot thing. It lasted 200 issues. Exactly. Yeah. We can make it a cartoon. Yeah. yeah. And then they recently made a remake of Conan the Barbarian's movie. I think it was yeah. four years ago. Yeah. And don't forget about the Schwarzenegger movies from the yeah. 80s. Yeah. Like those, those probably don't get made if Marvel didn't do Conan yeah. comics. Someone had to see that Conan was popular or that there was, right. you know, an audience for Conan. And yeah. Like, I want more Conan movies. Yeah, and there's going to be, I I guarantee that there's going to be more Conan movies, you know? Mm -hmm. We even got, yeah, another thing was we even got the live-action Conan TV show. Yeah. You know? So, like... There's a live-action Conan TV show? I don't think it was very good. It wasn't very good, but it was... It existed. I didn't even know it existed. (laughs) Yeah. I know they had, uh, I think it was Paramount's Great America or Six Flags for a while in the early 90s. They had a Conan the Barbarian, like, live-action show for the audience, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that Marvel Comics was kind of a lifeline for the property. Yeah. You know, like if we don't have that, I'm not gonna say emphatically that we don't get the movies or you know the the love that he gets now, but you know they played a big role in keeping him yeah, alive. Exactly, exactly. So I would say the impact is pretty large. Yeah, it's he's a cultural or pop cultural character. You know, like he yeah. people. May not have read Conan the Barbarian, but I think they've at least heard of him. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I was gonna say like you could go into a place and ask, and I'm not gonna say that everybody knows him, but I think you'd be surprised that I, more people know him than don't. I think most people at know the him. very least they know of the name, right? But I think yeah. if you ask most people how they know him, they're like, "Oh, wasn't that the movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in, or maybe the most recent one?" But what I'd be curious to find out is actually what was the story behind the making of that 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. Conan the Barbarian movie. Like, yeah. I wonder if it was coming to the fact like, oh, hey, this is still a hot property. We yeah. can capitalize on this now because yeah. that was still around the era of time when they made those Batman movies and they're still mm. making some Superman movies where comic book movies were a... a th- people don't realize this now, but the like, comic book movies were actually a thing in the late 70s to the 80s um, because it was a hot property. And then it kind of... Kind of Twiddled down a little bit, and all yeah. you had was Batman. Yeah, and you had Steel, and, and then you had, you still had it going on, but it, it's not what it is now. But like, yeah. So I'm I'm curious what the influence was. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't kind of this because you're right. If the books were published in the 30s and 40s, and that's all there ever was, then had you not had these comic books, then people wouldn't be aware or thinking about it. And just be like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we're just, just like another lost story to the ages in exactly. a way. Exactly. Yeah. And here's, a, here's another thing that uh, I think Conan had an impact on. And, and, and this is something that I kind of learned from, from reading uh, extracurricular material. Like, if you ever end up wanting to read more about the history of Marvel Comics, I would recommend this book called the Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. Mm. Uh, that's a really good book that talks about a lot of the 
behind the scenes uh, stuff that was going on at Marvel from the very beginning to the to the modern age. But one of the things that stood out was uh, Marvel in the 70s, late 70s, they were, you know how they were in dire financial straits? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Roy Thomas, he was the one, as the writer of Conan, he was the one who also secured the license for Conan from Robert E. Howard's estate back in the late 60s, early 70s. And because of... Because of that uh, and the success that he had with Conan, uh, that basically encouraged Marvel to continue seeking a lot more licensed properties. Oh, so th they didn't know that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, they ended up looking for a, a lot of random stuff. Yeah. Like I don't remember all the names of, of those things because they've been. Yeah. Unless unless you really cared about them, you wouldn't know them because yeah. they just didn't last uh, the yeah. way that Conan has lasted. But he. In a way, you could, you could probably say he kind of indirectly helped save Marvel in the 70s because uh, there was late 70s, Marvel's doing bad, and there was a point when uh, they were offered, Marvel was offered a chance uh, to do an adaptation of this science fiction movie that nobody had ever heard of. And, and uh, Stan Lee, or I forget if it was Stan Lee or whoever was in charge at the time, was like, uh, we're not doing that well anyway, so why would we want to take a chance on something that is unknown? Mm. Uh, so then, like, the someone from the movie ended up contacting Roy Thomas, like, hey, can you take a look at some of this material? You know, think, think maybe think again and, and revisit the idea of potentially adapting this. And Roy Thomas looked at it, and he decided, you know what, let's do it. And he ended up doing it, and it was Star Wars. It's that no. helps. I was, was going to yeah. ask about that because, like, yeah. I know that Marvel was publishing yeah. Star Wars comics in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was Star Wars. <clears throat> so they did a six-issue adaptation of A New Hope. Uh, the issues came out before the movie even came out, yeah. and those comics ended up helping to save Marvel. Yeah, that's a big that's thing. That's a huge story. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Just see, its impact is even greater than we were than I had thought. I, I thought it was strictly limited to keeping Conan alive, but so again, behind the scenes, the the in terms of the business aspect of it, yeah. like so it's like almost like an indirect impact of like yeah yeah kind of like Brubaker and Phillips in their respect of how they kind of reminded creative teams like this is what you can do again yeah you mm -hmm. can be independent artists and yeah. be successful once you've played this game these big two companies yeah. have tried to force you into yeah what Roy Thomas did with Conan Barbarian is like yeah directly we all may talk about Conan Barbarian how much how much has Conan the Barbarian influenced our social culture these days compared to like something like Star Wars or Star Trek? Maybe not as much, but the influence it had on the way these combo companies now viewed the idea of property yeah. of what they could explore in telling stories yeah. is revolutionary because licensing property became a big thing in the 80s. Like how many movie adaptations have happened now. to one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. licensing movie properties uh, really helped Dark Horse comics. Yeah. Yeah. It, in a way, you kind of can consider Conan kind of the grandfather of property comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah. What so for our final um, analysis of the book? Uh, do you think that this book, that Conan, as you're reading it right now, do you think it has the ability to withstand the test of time? Let's say enough said. <laughs> <laughs> and we're we're talking about a property that is originating from the 30s. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading it now, and 
I've read stuff from the 60s and 70s and 80s where, like, the dialogue was atrocious or just hard for me nowadays to, like, yeah. go through. Because it's really dated. Really yeah. dated. The dialogue here is, is, like, amazingly modern-esque. Like, it flows naturally, but you still get that, that feel of fantasy kind of talk of like yeah. Yeah. this overbearing of, of Conan's like simplicity yeah. of his like I don't I don't need to say many things or big things yeah. I'm gonna beat you in yeah and I, I think that's one of the things that works to to, to its Conan's advantage, advantage totally. because Conan is this fantasy setting and it, and it, it, it almost kind of come. yeah it, it kind of favors almost this purple prose <clears throat> style of writing which Roy Thomas is you know that's kind of yeah. how he writes but but it works because it, you're. It, it's it's it an old, you old fantasy story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it totally fits yeah. the material. And 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 as I read it, it doesn't annoy me. It doesn't yeah. make me think, oh, <clears throat> this is too many words or anything like People that. People don't talk like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even the the villain of the given issue is not yeah. like the blah ha ha. I'm going to try to conquer the world. It's just yeah. just these warlords or kings who are just corrupt or just like yeah. You're, what you would expect of typical emperors or kings of old history. Yeah. You know? It, I, I always thought that was one of the interesting aspects of Conan as well because he's he's framed as uh, the savage, you know, the the barbarian who's not from civilization. But a lot of the villains end up being civilized people. <laughs> <laughs> cool. What what did you have something else? I'm sorry. Oh no, I I was just gonna add that I, I think that was one of the thematic uh, aspects of Conan that that's always gonna withstand the test of time. You know, the yeah. idea that. Yeah. The idea that we may be more modern and civilized today, but that doesn't mean that people are inherently better than they ever yeah. were. Yeah, there's it's, something deep down in our nature that's, you know, our DNA comes from yeah. barbarism. There's <laughs> like, that one story about the Elephant Tower where, like, there are these, like, majestic aliens who, like, have elephant faces and had wings. And it's like, yeah. it's like they're a more advanced race, and, like, how do we deal with that? Like, how do we deal with things we don't understand as a yeah. society? But, like, I think, in fact, I would say Conan would probably be more appreciated as time goes on because it reflects a certain degree of purity of humanity, of, like, our rawness, our coarseness, mm-hmm. but also our ability in being so primitive to overcome and be good yeah. and to do the right thing. Yep. Well said. Well cool. said. All right. So I believe that we have spoken at length and we have given you... The which which numbers were these? So we had uh, at number fourteen we had Criminal by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. At number thirteen we had There's the Savage Sword of <laughs> <laughs> we had the Savage Sword of Conan. So I can rub this all by Roy Thomas, John yeah. Buscema, and a variety of other talented artists. Yep. Uh, if you want to find your own copies of of these works, Criminal. The current printings of Criminal uh, are actually published by Image Comics, and current reprintings of The Savage Sword of Conan are published by Dark Horse Comics. So definitely uh, recommend checking them out. Maybe uh, reach out to us and, and let us know what you think. Yeah. Leave uh, leave comments or you know email us. Yeah. Uh, we we want to know how to make this better, and you know we don't mind talking to people. We're very lonely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ask us a question and we'll answer. Yeah, we're Probably just right desperate away, for attention. We have nothing else to do. Yeah, we have yeah. nothing else to do. Yeah, I'll even take hate. I'm, I'm not picking <laughs> these. Days. I'll repeat that again. It's okay. Yeah. 
send us your hate because <laughs> hate makes Shane is stronger. <laughs> they say there's no thing as, as bad publicity, right? So you think it's bad attention. At least you're getting something, you know? Send Shane us your emails, <laughs> your hate emails. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for listening. This is Between, Between the, the Gutters. Gutters. We said that almost simultaneously. Shankadanka. Shankadanka, folks. Shankadanka, everybody. Shankadanka, everybody. Shankadanka. <laughs>